Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. The great Broadway star Carol Channing died on February 15, 2019, at the age of 97. This iconic performer, along with starring in Hello, Dolly! for over 5,000 performances, made her mark in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, appeared on the Broadway stage in 13 other shows, and was also known for her TV appearances and a role in the film Thoroughly Modern Millie. I interviewed her in the KPFA studios for her memoir, Just Lucky, I Guess, on October 18, 2002. Strange-looking, tall in heels, a waist that looked 15 inches wide, and a head large enough to fit on Mount Rushmore, Carol Channing walked into the KPFA studio all in black, her shirt buttoned to the top. As the interview continued, she unbuttoned, and you could see her performer's aura, which was enhanced by the group of KPFA workers who congregated in the control room to watch her through the plate glass. It was extraordinary. The best way to hear Carol Channing is unfettered by editing. This is the interview exactly as it took place on that day in 2002. My special guest is Carol Channing, who has a memoir called a memoir of sorts, Just Lucky, I guess. Carol Channing is the Broadway star of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Hello, Dolly. Uh, in the Bay Area. She's also known for being this, one of the stars of Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is kind of a cult favorite these days. And I had 13 Broadway shows, I have to tell you, Mr. Walensky. And we will, we will discuss every single one of them in the next half hour, if I can. Um, the book you're looking at yes. uh, while we're talking is a book called Diary of a Mad Playwright by James Kirkwood and details the production of a show called Legends, which came through San Francisco in 1986. And we'll talk about that uh, in a couple of minutes. But perhaps we should start by at the beginning of your career. All right, there we are. Aren't I rude? I never saw that book before. Well, <laughs> I, never well I, I have you till 1 o'clock, so maybe you could take a look at it again. And, and what, I will do, what I will do is I will talk to Matt and see if we could get you a copy. Okay. Oh, thank you. If we can. All right. Okay. Carol Channing, your career spans something like 60 years, 50-something 50, 50 years. Uh-huh. And I think it's more. More. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were born in um, 1921, yeah. and you went to high school in San Francisco, Lowell, Lowell High School. I went to a, a Commodore Slow Grammar School, Aptus Junior High, and Lowell High School. Do you have fond memories of those days in San Francisco? Memories? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes. Every single block has a memory. As, as Naomi drives us here, she's the official driver for all authors. I'm in the literary world now. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wrote a book. So uh, 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 she, every place she drives, there's a memory on that block. 
like Polk Street and the day the, the Golden Gate Bridge was finished and we were all, everybody was marching over it and we had a big parade, a tremendous parade. So I did a thing in Lowell High School of, of, about the, the bridge parade. Did you, did you actually march over the bridge at that point? No, I watched the parade. You just watched the parade. Yeah, I watched the parade. So I did a, a dance pantomime on it. So what was when you first looked at the Golden Gate Bridge, were you just like stunned? Oh, no, I, I, I was a school officer, and they invited all school officers from all public schools in San Francisco to come and watch the progress of the bridge, both bridges being built, and the salty waves were cracking around us. The, the, the bridge we just came over, the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, the, it, the, we, it was only went halfway to uh, Yerba Buena Island when right. I first saw it. I mean, when I when I was and we stood at the end where it stopped and the workers were working and drilling and hanging stuff and all that and it, the waves were cracking and and I was scared I was going to fall in but they invited us again as the progress went on. I saw this; it's history. That's a, that's incredible. Oh, it was thrilling. It, it's so uh, 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 the same with the Golden Gate Bridge. Carol Channing, you wound up going to Bennington, and what people don't know is that you actually wrote a thesis. And what was on Shaw? Oh, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. Yeah, and you wound up later playing in Pygmalion. Yes. Yeah. How did that feel having and, and studied the millionaires, and the millionaires too, and uh, another one I forget. How were you able to? Did you remember enough of your academic work to help translate that, or, or was the acting just more? spontaneous at the time. Do you no, remember? you can't be spontaneous with Shaw. You have to get every word. The Shaw estate sues you if you miss a word. Well, you know, that's not easy. I mean, I love you and I'd like to marry you, the voice says. The, the, the John McMartin says to me. And, and I said, fine, but first let me tell you how I feel about organized religion. You know, and then when you go into it, four pages of monologue about organized religion or about income tax or about the, 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 the class distinction in the British Isles. You know, uh, uh, it, it's really, it, uh, it's very difficult to do Shaw, but that's why it makes such great musicals because The Chocolate Soldier and My Fair Lady are wonderful. They just cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just tell the story. But it really was fun to do Shaw. It is fun. They're, they're a type of British woman. Peggy Ramsey is a great literary agent. Was. She's probably no longer with us. But anyway, Peggy Ramsey was that very, very clipped, you know, uh, she handled John Mortimer. And she said, well, the trouble with John Mortimer is, and she couldn't stand to be interrupted by the telephone, so she would pick up the telephone to stop it from ringing. She picked up the telephone, held it right to her face, and said, the trouble with John Mortimer is he sleeps with every woman in town. And, and then said, hello, well, this could be his mother, this could be his wife, <laughs> this could have been anybody on the other end of the phone. <laughs> I remember interviewing John Mortimer. And, oh, did uh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I was in his hotel room, and the phone rang. It was his wife, and he said, we can't go outside now. It's pissing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way they talk. I know, That's I know. That's it. That's it. Well, Carol Channing, um, you wound up um, coming, going to New York. When you went to New York, you just were, you know, another chorus girl trying to break in, another Broadway baby, right? I guess another Broadway baby. Well, no, I wasn't a chorus girl. I understudied Eve Arden in Let's Face It, which was Danny Kaye's big musical. So you actually you actually began one step above most... No, 
No. You don't think no, it did? No, Vinton Friedley produced it. And I, it, when I understood it, if a chorus girl was missing, I would beg him and say, can't I go on? Let me do it. So I, I fit into Eve Arden's costumes at the time. But he said, oh, all right, Carol, you can go. And I tried out different makeups and different, uh, I did an East Indian effect of sort of a Uday Shankar with high cheekbones and sunken, sunken underneath them and uh, eyes that go to your ears, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, so I did that, and uh, I was, uh, I am over six feet tall in heels. Right. I mean, these are, uh, uh, they, we had to wear high heels, so I was about six feet three. And the little cute little chorus girls came up to my shoulder. Well, Danny and Benny happened to turn around, and Danny double took me. And could not go on with his, it was the finale. So Benny looked to see why he couldn't remember his next line, why Danny couldn't. So he turned around and he couldn't remember where he was. Apparently I had an East Indian makeup on another chorus girl's outfit that was too small. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I loved it. I got to. I, but Vinton said I could not go on again. I, had, I could only understudy Eve, so I did go on for Eve. Now, what, do you remember what year that was? Oh dear! It was like I 1940 or something. Was it? it was in the 30s, or was it in no, the no, 40s? No, no, It was in the 40s. I was out of Bennington, so so. See, the reason the I I didn't just up and go to New York. I went to Bennington College, which is only a, a short train ride to ver, the lower left-hand corner of Vermont. Now, at that point, were you friends with? Um, by that point, you were friends with Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Right? Yes. And they had a show called The Reviewers with Judy Tuvim, who became Judy Holiday. That's right. In your Gee, you know everything. In your book, Just Lucky, I Guess, you talk about the three of them, but there was a fourth member of The Reviewers that you don't talk about, Lenny Bernstein. Did you know him? No. Was he one of the reviewers? Yeah. Well, when I knew them, it was just the two of them. No, the three, the three of, them. of them. Judy Holiday. Well, did you ever meet Bernstein? Because you did Wonderful Town. I did one. Yeah, you knew. He did, he wrote Wonderful Town. Yes. He wrote the music. Well, I don't have to tell you. So <laughs> yes, did, I met him, knew him, you know, and his wife, Felicia. Yes. Was was he? Um, he was a larger than life character his whole life. What, what was your impression of Leonard Bernstein? Oh, uh, my impression. I thought he was Leonard Bernstein. And by the way, we're saying it right. But I expected him to be that way, and that's the way he was. I didn't notice anything larger than life. I just knew he was a tremendous talent, a tremendous, uh, uh, that he was a, a, a musical force. Uh, no, he, uh, I, I thought he was, and, and, and that's what he seemed to me to be. Did he offer you, you did the road tour of Wonderful Town. Did he offer any specific direction on how to sing or anything like that, or, or nothing? Well, it's not easy to sing the wrong note rag. Oh, right, so, it's difficult, yeah. Yes, to sing wrong notes. Not that I stay on tune that well, but it's just that it's, a, it's hard to figure out what the right wrong note is, you know? And then to, uh, uh, to harmonize with the girl that plays Eileen. Before that, you, um, you were in Gentleman's That's Prefer. a funny, uh, peculiar show, Wonderful Town. Oh, it is. It's yes, a great show, though. Oh, great show. But it was the first of its kind where it really dealt with uh, uh, the, a female 
the, 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 my part was I decided a female Mark Twain. She grew up in the Middle West and captured the Middle West in writing for all time. But a girl who couldn't express herself except on the printed page, you know, for a musical, that's not easy to play that part. I mean, you can't express yourself in a musical. You can't stand there with the razzmatazz of show business, and, and, and you can't do it. But Shirley Booth played the play, and she told me, it comes hard, Carol, and it comes slowly, the part of Ruth Sherwood, but it comes. You get it. And I did. It does. I finally got it. Well, when you're doing a road tour, and the original star is someone like Rosalind Russell, and you, have you, Carol Channing, have your own personality— how do you do you see her performance? Do you try to ignore her performance? How did that go work? Yeah, the only thing you can do is don't imitate anyone else. I mean, you're sunk if you do. You know, you know that you're you're yourself. That's right. why you have an audience. If you're not yourself, you don't have an audience. So I just. I'll tell you, I played it quite differently. Um, Mr. Abbott, George Abbott, directed sure. it, and he said, "How long are you going to wear your heart on your sleeve from the audience?" And so I said, well, I can't help it. That's the way I see Ruth. She's a doggone genius, you know. She, well, I didn't know she was a genius. Claudia Cassidy, the meanest, bitterest critic in the Middle West, raved about it. And she said, Rosalind Russell plays it for intelligence. Let's face it, she was wonderful. Carol plays it for genius. Isn't that wonderful? That's, That's terrific. That's a great compliment. She played, I didn't know it. I didn't know that was what I... I just thought, now, wait a minute. If, if, you're, if you're Mark Twain and you're a female, how would you do this? You're not going to go around being a smart ass. You know, you're not going to go around and say quick, quick retorts and, and, and quick uh, uh, lines, quick... Uh, 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 comedy lines, You're, he wouldn't do that. He's unsure of himself, unsteady. Of course he is. I mean, anybody that, that writes like that. And she, Ruth McKinney, was like Mark Twain, I think. Columbus, Ohio. Well, the, the other advantage, I guess, you have over someone like Russell is that Russell just by virtue of her existence, exudes power, yes. whereas that's almost wrong then for Ruth. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, for my version of Ruth. For your version but of Ruth. But she was perfect for her version of Ruth. She was fantastic. She How, really was great in the part. It must have been difficult also singing the intricate harmonies of the song Ohio. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh. Oh, I'll never get it right. Even now, I just sing my own part and go off tune. I'll never get it right. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh. Why did we ever leave Ohio? Those are tricky. Those oh, yeah, sure are. <laughs> well, before that, and let, let's go back a little. You did a show called Lend an Ear, and that was the show that made you. They gave you extra performances, and there was another person. You call her Yenta, but... You know, you can look it up. Her real name was Ivana Dare. Is that correct? No, no. It that's was not, not over. True. It Ivana was, Dare and I were friends. It was not Ivana Dare. Not Ivana Dare. She played Dorothy to Laurel I. Lee yeah. in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The, and she was in Lend an Ear. It was not. Then who was it? Or can't you say? Can't I, say. <laughs> I hate to say. Because she was a talent. And it's wrong that she's not in show business now. She was a talent. And she's now a hygiene, a dental hygienist in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. But she's a brilliant dental hygienist. She's probably the best. She was brilliant at that. And I mean, I couldn't do that to save my life. I don't want to hurt her now. What good does that do me? 
But it was, it, but but I mean, if you look at the cast list, you should be able to figure out who it was. I mean, I looked at the cast oh, list. I, I thought it was her. I thought it was Ivana. Oh Dare. no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I better make that clear in the yeah. second printing. We're going into the second printing. Yeah, because because that's who I I saw the list yes. of people, and her name came first, even before yours. And I was thinking, oh, it must have been her. So um, you're going to need to make that clear, absolutely. And I was thinking, and she also was in uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blonde. Yes, she was. Not this girl, not the one, not Not Nanta. this one. No. Well, Jen, lend an ear. Lend an ear led directly to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, right? Uh, yes. It, I had uh, three choices in lend an ear. See, I got to play nine characters, and every one of them I treasured. I just, they, it was a well-written show, really, Charlie Gaynor. Wrote it like little English reviews that are uh, done, yeah. And, and so I, 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 it was, I got to, well, Josh Logan turned the tide for me. He came to see the show, and he loved it, and said, I, you can't afford me as a director, but Gower Champion was the choreographer. Right. He said, you can't afford me as a director, but I will put $30,000 in this show, and I'll bring it to New York. And he did. And the first thing he did, he said, you've got to establish Carol, because that she does a klutz. I, I dance like a little klutz, I, like a newborn colt. Was the, it, that's what one critic said. But it, 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 in uh, The Gladiola Girl, we revived the 20s. And which later, as you point out in your book, Just Lucky, I guess, led to shows like The Boyfriend. Oh, you read the book. Of course I read you the book. You dear, dear man. I read the book cover to cover. I read a second book. of. I read two books for this interview. You de- oh, How wonderful of you. Thank you. And I it, always read the books. That's why it's a literary It makes program. for a much better interview, doesn't it? I would hope so. Oh, yes. I would oh, hope oh, so. Well, I just so thank you. Some people don't read it. I know they don't. <laughs> I know they don't. Well, let's, let's move on a little to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes because... Because that is the show that turned you into a star yes. and an icon. Yes. But I could have done Dulcie with, with George S. Kaufman writing it, turning it into a musical. Or I could have done Out of This World, Cole Porter, one of me for Queen Lita. But I, this monumental character of Lorelei Lee, I couldn't get her out of my mind. Anita Luce wrote that. Oh, and Anita said, there's my Lorelei. One thing I, I found listening to the score yesterday is that... There's hints of what later became the Carol Channing personality, but what surprised me is that is how much it, it how different it was from what we think of as Carol Channing. You were young, you were starting out, and you were a hayseed in the show. Well, that's what no, no, that's what Lorelai was. Right, exactly. exactly. No, you play whatever the character is. Yeah, I know, I know, but it, I it, was the same, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You never see yourself, do you? I guess not. I can't I see not. my. I have no perspective on myself at all. That's why in the book I had to just write all the facts I couldn't let the reader decide who I am. Well, one of the, <laughs> one one of the interesting elements of it is I listened to the song "Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend," yes. and the very first line sounded like a man was singing it, and I'm going, "That's not her." And then suddenly, it is you. How did you get those low notes? Because, oh, that's what I can do. <laughs> no, no. The, no, the thing is that we, I, we wanted to get off it and imitate those very sexy, smoky voices that they have in Paris, you know. And we thought, ah, we'll, have an apa- we'll be one of the Apache dancers with a cigarette, lighting it on a, with a, a holder and all that. Julie Stein and Leo Robin and I tried everything. We finally decided, let's make it one of those French. Apache dancers. So we, uh, no, the French are glad to die for, you know, Marlena Dietrich and right. 
math scholar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly it's diamonds, and and your voice goes up like yeah. A couple well, that's Lorelai's voice. Right. And that's not easy to keep using somebody else's voice for when you've got your own vocal cords. And for how many performances did you do? Oh, we uh, toured no. after that for three years. So thousands of performances. Oh, yes. Well, and you've done Hello, Dolly! so many times. How do you keep a character fresh? Noel Coward came backstage between matinee and evening show when I was doing this little review, Lendon Ear, in the Broadhurst Theater next door to Mary Martin, by the way. And 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 we used to meet on the... I'm off the subject again. We'd meet on the fire escape. And she'd say, where's my baby girl? And I was six feet, as I say. Right. And she was just five feet out of two or something. Well, anyway, and I'm her baby girl, for gosh sakes. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway, I loved her. She... She lent me her dresser on opening night of Blondes, and it made a difference. It, it really did. And then she took her back. No fool, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back to my question. How do you keep it fresh? You were about to tell Thank me about you. Noel Coward. Thank you. I'm way off the subject. I know. Right. It. I it's know. okay. It's all no, right. It's, it's my job to keep you back in, to bring you back, bring you back in. It's chivalrous of you, really, <laughs> because I, I know it's it's an illness I have. Well, anyway, so uh, uh, what did you, what was I on? <laughs> you were talking about Noel Coward. Noel Coward. Yeah. Came backstage. Yeah. Talk to me. And he said, look, when you feel you're losing your audience, love, when you feel that, put me in your audience. We all do that. Right. And he said, if I, he said, it has to be someone who really understands you, really, and, and cares for you. He said, it will work with me. He said, that's how you find out who your friends are. And it's true. I, put, I can put Noel Coward in the audience. The best is my father because he was no pushover for me and he wouldn't take anything second best for me. But... He would say, wait a minute, and even to this day, I can hear him saying to me, maybe it's in my mind, he's up in the balcony, he's gone years ago, but I can hear him saying, tell it to me, I understand you, tell it to me, you're listening to the sound of your own voice, no, no, tell it to me, I want to know this story, and I'm listening, and I tell it to my father, the memory of my father maybe. I mean, I can't tell people that, I, but I swear he's there. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. And it Do you helps. think so? Well, sure. I, why I, not? I, I mean, if you you feel him there, and we can feel I presences. Sure. I do. So play it to someone who understands you, that you know understands you all the way through, and give your soul to him. And before you know it, the whole audience slowly understands you as well as your father, as well as Noel Coward. As well, if it's someone who really cares, really, that's how you can tell your friends. If I put one woman, I thought, oh, she's just, heaven, she's so exciting. I'm going to put her in the audience for the matinee. And now, But that's the way you keep a show fresh. Tell it to a, a loved one. But, but you're also saying the words or singing the songs over. I mean, how many times have you sung hello, whoever the waiter's names it's are? It's no I mean, problem it's no at difference. all. What's the matter with me? That's no problem. And everybody says you must be on that automatic pilot by now. We did 5,000 performances of it, over that of Hello, Dolly. Sure. And I, there's something. I, it, it always, it's like walking a tightrope. You, your mind goes for a minute and you say, Gee, I'm hungry. I think I'll have... And you've lost the audience. So you always have to remain... Oh! That person is always there for you. It, the audience is an x-ray machine. They know exactly... Even with your back to them, they know what you're thinking. And there's a comment that's made. I think George Burns points it out in, um, in your memoir, which is lucky, I guess, Carol Channing. George Burns points out that he used to look at 
the audience before going on, and he always knew what kind of an audience it was. And yeah. you notice that most of the time you can do that too. No, no, I'm pre- I'm pretty well wrong sometimes. Are you really? Well, I used to do it for the rest of the company. Nancy Walker, the great comedian. Well, she would lift the curtain and and just listen, and then sniff around, and then she'd call it right, and she'd say, they're going to be slow today, or they're going to be fast, or be on your toes, they're quick, they're bright. She would get the whole thing. I'm often wrong. I tried it. (laughs) I can't tell till I get out there with them. You know, from the audience perspective, I never know what kind of an audience I'm with, and you you can't really tell, but there's a, a definite relationship between the kind of performance you put on and the audience. Yes. I mean, you can, you're performing, what? How do you tell what kind of an audience you're with? You see, that to me is remarkable that well, you can do that. I don't think you can. I mean, you sort of can halfway through a show because the, you know what it is? You see what the stage, the people on the stage are doing, and that relates right back. It's this interactive thing. Interactive. You know, because you're, you're aware when you're on stage that there's an audience, aren't you? Oh, certainly. Oh, every second. There, there are two brains, one going to your fellow actors and the other one going right out to the third balcony. What happens if stuff on stage gets more interesting than the audience? You lose the audience, right? Yeah, that's pretty frightening because you remember it to your grave. As George Burns says, it's written in ash on your forehead right till you go to your grave, the, uh, the, 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 the lines you've lost. I mean, the, the, the lines where they don't cry or they don't laugh. And then you've got to figure it out. You got, and before it gets more and more, uh, uh, the longer the show goes on, the better the show gets. Sure. The, the worst performance is always opening night. If they'll just let us play beyond opening night, if the critics will just see that it will, it could be, you know. And then it comes, we can bring it up to our fondest dreams of this show. This character, this wonderful person that I'm playing, and and uh, if uh, well anyway, George said, "Wait a minute, would you just tell me that George?" Uh, oh well, he had said he could just look at an audience and know. And no, well, I haven't got that ability. I have to be out there with them. But they, it does come back to you. You send it out, and it comes back. And in a musical, you face straight out, especially in Thornton Wilder. He wrote um, the original Matchmaker that right, Jolly sure. was taken from, and. Thornton Wilder believed in, it's called breaking the fourth wall, as you know. Break, right. the, break that wall, the wall that's supposedly in a play. Uh, uh, see, in a play, they ignore the audience. In a musical, you can turn right around and say, I want to tell you my credo. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. And you say it's straight to the audience, right to the people. And Thornton Wilder thought it was rude in a play the way they ignore the audience. So he broke the fourth wall in... Our town, the skin of our teeth, the 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 matchmaker. He he broke it all, constantly and had them turn. For instance, I remember when Tallulah Bankhead played uh, uh, um, uh, the character in um, yeah, skin of our teeth. Skin yeah, of our teeth. Maid, oh, yeah. you know everything, everything. There no. she sat in a red bathing suit, and she said, <laughs> "Well, anyway, Tallulah said in the skin of our teeth, Sabina." Sabina. Yeah. So. Tallulah sat there and she said, uh, she turned right around. She's talking to her fellow actors and she turned right around and said, now this 
guy coming through the doors. He's, he's, I don't like him particularly. You may care for him, but I can't tolerate him. But he's on his way through the door. And so, it's, and she tells the audience all that. That's the way Thornton Wilder wrote. And in comes the guy, and we all decide whether we like him or not. Because of that. Because, because of she that. talked to the audience. She yeah. talked to the audience, and she comes and says, Mr. Antrobus has written, you know, oh, by the way, that, that play, Thornton Wilder was writing it uh, for a musical, and he wanted to write it for one actress to play both Sabina and Mrs. Antrobus. Well, in fact, in fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Candor and Ebb tried for, to put on, they put on a production of a musical version. They couldn't make it work. I, they they wrote it classically, but the reason it didn't work, according to Thornton Wilder, before he died, right. he got on the Bremen because it was the slowest boat ship on the high seas, yeah. and he expected to get it rewritten for the way he wanted it. He, I never knew Mrs. Antropus and Sabina were the same woman. And he said, well, you see, I didn't make that clear, and I've got to make So I want the same woman to play both the eternal homemaker and the eternal other woman, the mistress. Right. Right. And he said, that's eternal. That will always be. The homemaker, the mother, two looks side, after the two family. Two faces of the same, the uh, same uh, woman. The yeah. sa- two sides of the same woman. Right. Yes. And so he was going to do that. So shall I tell you who he was going to write it for? I think it's in the book, but go ahead. It's in the book. Oh, no, you could tell us. I know you tell him. You tell your own. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was you. <laughs> Why, how could you forget? <laughs> how could you forget? To me, I treasure that. But he died. He died. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were a huge hit in uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And there you were, the show's wrap winding down. And Marilyn Monroe got the part of Lorelei Lee. How yes. did you find out about that? Well, I do think it was her best movie, don't you? It was, well, other One than Something Like It Hot, I think. Oh, that but, was marvelous. Yeah. yeah. Well, how did you find out about that? And how did you feel at the moment when you heard that she'd gotten your great role? Just terrible. <laughs> Just terrible. I was in the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Toronto, yeah. and I was up on the 36th floor or something like that, and I leaned out. I read it in the paper. You didn't even know. No, nobody told me. So I read it in the paper, and and I looked out the window, and there was a terrible pain that went through me right from the top, head to toe. And I thought, all I have to do is lean out this window, and the pain will all be gone. That's how I felt. Just lean out and fall out. It, it must have been hard, and then you see the movie, and it's her greatest, one of her greatest performances. Yes. It must have been a very bittersweet feeling because, you know, you would have done something so different and wonderful, too. Yes, it wasn't bittersweet at all. It was bitter. It was bitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you finally did make it. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine. Now, we know you were in a movie called The First Traveling Sales Lady with oh, Ginger please. Rogers. We and can't you... lose that movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, do you know that we, we can't lose it? People died over that movie, Jim Arness, and uh, oh, people are all it, it killed them. It, it was we we called it death of a sales lady while we were making it. You knew, we knew, <laughs> and and you were also, of course, in Thoroughly Modern Millie. What else were you in? Were you with you were in other movies as well? No, that's it. That's it. Just the two movies. Yeah. Well, what happened? Why didn't you get a Hollywood career? I mean, later on, of course, you did television, but what happened in those days? I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. But I really was busy on Broadway, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, and that's every actor's dream, just to keep busy, keep working all the time. And I got it. And or, or if you're not in a new show, then you're touring. And I was touring all over Canada and all over Australia and all over all over the United States. And if a show is enough of a hit, that's the only way that you are able to tour it. And that's that's what I I do like that. Well, you, so you did. Uh, you went right from. Did you go right from? Let me try that again. Did you go right from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes into Wonderful Town, or were there, was there anything between the two? Do you remember? Uh, no, I guess I went right into Wonderful. Let's see, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I can't remember. I, is it in the book? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. That's why I was I was curious about the order of the sequence. Because that would have been quite a jump from Laurel yeah, Lee right into uh, into was, Ruth Sherwood. Yes, it was a jump, and I remember it was a deliberate jump. Bobby Fryer, Robert Fryer, was the uh, producer of uh, Wonderful Town. Wonderful producer, and so he said, "Carol, why why don't you try changing your image?" And he alone thought she she's not Laurel She's oh Kate. no. So all of a sudden, I'm playing a genius from the Middle West who captured the Middle West for all time, this woman, just the opposite, a woman who marries her own publisher, and, and right. yeah, and it's a good, oh, gee, that was a good show. But Bobby Fryer said, you want to change your image? I would like you to do Ruth Sherwood. So I thought, oh, this is going to be wonderful because I was used to reviews for jumping from one character to, to another. That's the spice of life. That's the fun of life. That's the fun I've got in the book. The spice of life for me is Ewell Brynner and Ethel Merman and I didn't get Sophie Tucker in, but that was a big part of my life. But I'll get her in in the next book. But it, it'll... I, it, 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 it's... Uh, it, these are the people, the eccentrics, the great, fabulous characters that knock you clean over when you meet them. Yeah. And, 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 and that's you... well, sometimes they're not even in the theater. And the spice of life is meeting the, those those meet, yep. huge people. And somebody that isn't um, that, that has an accent different from mine. That always fascinates me. Now you also did uh, impressions. Could you do a Merman impression? Well, no, but I can quote her. What did she say to me? She said, um, "Oh, um, uh, when, I, when well, we were supposed to. We did a love boat, and we were trying to get the. Um, uh, what are you laughing at? Oh no, Naomi's laughing in there. That's what, what is she laughing? Well, at? she heard love boat, and she just started to laugh. <laughs> Well, they wanted to get the sweeps, Naomi, so just to make it, yes. So, uh, the, uh, no, no, <laughs> microphone, <laughs> audience, yeah. Okay, focus. So you said that, that, that you and, and Ethel well, were doing. Ethel had a tumor. Mary Martin said Ethel had a tumor growing. That tumor was growing for longer than we think on her right. brain. But I've never known her to be any different. I, ever since Girl Crazy, I think it's been growing, and that was her first show. I mean, Ethel was always Ethel. So when you did that, the love boat together. <laughs> yeah. So well, you see, we used to. People said, "Oh, I, I'd say hello, Ethel." When actors get together at a benefit or something, and Ray D. Harris, do you know who? Ray D. Harris. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, she was the chronicler of show business in. Variety it was. Okay. So, Rady uh, uh, Harris, say, uh, Ethel wouldn't answer. So she said, don't you an answer, Carol Ethel? And Ethel said, Carol who? So she was looking. Anyway, 
uh, she would never answer me. And I guess it's true. She didn't know. She didn't. So she said, "Have you seen Hello Dolly?" And and Ethel said, "Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I turned that show down." <laughs> and she was the last person to do it. But we became the best of. Yes, she was, and we were the best of friends. I was with her when she was dying, and the same with Mary Martin. I was with her when she died. It, it's something I don't know. I don't understand it. But boy, we held hands. We really did, and she was beautiful. I never saw her look so young. Yeah, that, that's that's in your book. It's a very yeah. touching moment. Oh yeah. yes, but Ethel. Well, Ethel. Oh, we our first shot. I was in the middle. Annie Miller, darling, on my right. Ethel on the left. Okay. So uh, every time they'd say action, they'd close right in in front of me in a V in a like a. What do you call that? A phalanx. So they'd close out and I'd say, York, Mark is there. Your Mark is there. I'll give. And it was nothing but fights between the three of us. So finally, they, they, they got them to stand back where they're supposed to. So Annie said, I said to Annie, oh, they said, cut, powder down Miss Channing. Every time they say action, I sweat in the face. Okay. So they said, make up, powder, powder down Miss Channing. They'd have to stop. Cut. Powder Dumbass, I said, why do I sweat like a truck driver and you two girls are so dainty and feminine? Now, this annoys me. Why do I do this? I said to them. And Annie doesn't want you to feel badly about yourself. So she patted me. She said, honey, don't you worry. Every, you, everybody sweats in a different place. You sweat in the face. I sweat, some people sweat in the armpits. I sweat in the crotch. So Ethel, the, every, the, the, the the crew all said, what What did she say? They all came forward. Well, what was that? I missed that. Well, Ethel didn't like the attention that was on Annie. So she could, she, yeah, everybody sweats in the crowd. I said, Eddie, Ethel, we heard you. We heard you. We heard Annie. We don't have to hear it again. So she said, everybody sweats it up. And so I put my hand over her mouth. Well, she was absolutely inarticulate, you see. So she went, everybody, I said, Ethel, you don't have to repeat it. So they, they all, but they all, People from way up above, uh, 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 the light men and everybody had to hear. So Annie said, oh, yes, honey, when, when, uh, when I was in Sugar Babies, my little blow dryer was just about worn out between scenes. <laughs> this went on for four months, four months. And it was sweet little me in the middle of all this. <laughs> well, Carol Channing, um, you wound up, after doing a flop like The Vamp, uh, you wound up eventually. Yes, you learn more from your flops, don't you? Uh, probably you do. Yeah. Oh, I do. Haven't you had a flop? Oh, that was an annoying. I learned if you don't have a Gower Champion, if you don't have a Josh Logan, if you don't, nope, you can't do it. You've got to get the whole, all these stars who could be box office on their own, the, like Julie Stein, Leo Robin, you know, uh, uh, Leonard yeah. Bernstein. The, 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 they could be the box office alone. Make them all together. Get behind. Behind the eyeballs of one man and act as one in one direction. It's interesting in um, Diary of a Mad Playwright, which by James Kirkwood, which yeah. talks about legends uh, and your work with Mary Martin on the play. He mentioned several times that any time there was a problem, you would come and say, "Jimmy, for God's sake, get one person to do this. Nobody is doing it." This British director yeah. is not doing it. We need one person. It could be you. We need a person. I said that? Yes, you did. I thought was thinking it, but I didn't know I said it. Well, it's in, your, in the book several times. He just let us go every which direction. You can't do that. 
You can't do that. It has to be one man's outlook. One. And it's got to be somebody who's able to put the fear of God into, into everybody if they don't look through his eyeballs. And that's why the vamp didn't work. Not the play. That's it was why. the person. That's it. It was the it was the whole no. The play didn't have a viewpoint either. Right. No. Okay. It it just didn't. And and I thought it had a wonderful view. It was with the story of Theta Barra. Oh, I I thought it was a wonderful part. Well, it it just didn't. It, it, it you got to have a, a a benevolent despot. That's what you need. So now you knew, by the time the vamp was going to open. Did you know that this thing was a dud? Yes. You did? Yep. Do you always know? You if know, something's a hit or a flop? I don't admit it to people, but before a real smash hit, you know it. I knew it. And you don't know it in rehearsal. I didn't know it. I knew it with Gentleman for Blunts, and I knew it with Hello, Dolly. And uh, I knew it the last rehearsal we had before we opened out of town on the pre-Broadway tour. There's something that happens. We weren't, there was no scenery, no costumes. And every show looks like the greatest show on earth without scenery and costumes. Right. And you've seen that. Oh, sure. You know that. What do you mean, oh, sure? I didn't well, because know that. There's, a, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a troupe called 42nd Street Moon in San Francisco that yeah. puts on uh, old shows, yes. and they do it without costumes. Without, you can always see it. And no scenery. And no scenery. And one reason why our town rests in our memory so firmly is because there was nothing, no scenery, nothing. And and, and it, it, it stay, all you get is the emotion of the playwright. Right. And, and that that made a lot of bad shows look good from 42nd Street Moon. That's, that's right. That's right. Well, just the same. Something happened on that last rehearsal in the Ziegfeld Theater in New York when we were on our way to Philadelphia. Right. And it came, uh, we were standing, we were working like crazy, and we stopped and to hear the director. And something happened. It came from above, and it hit me on the head. It didn't, I didn't feel anything. But it was the holy city, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven like unto a cloud. That's what's in the Bible. It, it descended out of heaven like unto a cloud, and it blessed the whole company. And it just said, that's the level of the show. You get it? And I knew the level of the show from then on. I knew where Lorelai's character fit with Dorothy's. I knew where, where everybody's, everybody, the chorus, where we all fit, and what it was, what the level was. It was almost a cartoon. It was a comic strip. Really? Yeah, and I knew it then. We were working and working and learning right. the lines and learning the choreography and all that. And But what's the level of this show? What is it? And, and then you knew. And then I knew it just comes. And I knew, I thought, it's a blessing. It's something. What is it? But uh, do you believe in those things? Well, same thing happened sure. with Hello, Dolly. Same thing. You just knew at that point you I had it down. I knew what it was all about and where it fit, but we had to change and change Hello, Dolly, out of town. We changed it, but we changed it for the better. The usual thing is panic strikes the whole company, panic strikes the writers, the crew, everybody, and they change it for the worst. Everything gets changed for the worst. Fix the scenery, fire this person, blah, 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 and all that. And they, they do all the wrong things because they're panicky. And in Hello, Dolly, the, the, the changes came right because that, that uh, it descended. Something comes and says, this is what it's all about, Carol. This is the level of the show. Now stick to it. And Gower Champion felt it too, and he and I stuck together close as could be. 
He didn't even want me in the part in the beginning, but we never had a disagreement after he said, I buy that. I had to audition for him. Did you know, say, that Jerry's girls would not make it then? I mean, did you have that same idea? Like, I mean, the other side of it, it's like not coming together. What happens there? Oh, Jerry's girls was a, was a, a success. But did you have that same? You didn't have that same kind of feeling. No, because though. it was already done. It, it, what Jerry's it was girls a, was it was, was review. Review a repeat of what Jerry had already done successfully on Broadway. Right. We were repeating Jerry Herman. It was a night with Jerry Herman's music, and all of us were doing it. But I got to do Mame in that. Oh, you did. Yeah. And that she's hilarious. <laughs> if you had your druthers, or if you had a choice. Can you think of a couple of roles beside Mame that you would have loved to have done on Broadway that you didn't get a chance to do? Yeah, and what? it's ahead of me. Hmm? <laughs> it's ahead of me. Okay, who? I've never played myself, ever. So you want to do kind of what Elaine Stritch did? No. No. She's my dear friend. She, we, we're crazy about one another. No, I don't want it, anything like Elaine Stritchers. It's not going to be a one-woman show. But I can't talk about it. I can't. You know what you do? You, you know, have you ever written a book? Yes. Okay. If you talk about what you're going to write, you lose your energy when you write it, don't you? Right. It loses energy. It, the, the very energy that goes into making that thing happen... If you say, you know what I'm going to write about? The creation of the Hello Dolly number. And it's going to be... And then you can't write it. Well, that's, that's what jinxes the thing. If you talk about what you're going to do next, it jinxes it. So we won't talk about no, it No, it has nothing all. to do with what Elaine Stritch did. That was perfection. Nobody could ever go beyond that. I could never match that. I've, she was just terrific. Did you see it? N- no, oh. but I have the CD. I've heard it. It's wonderful. You can just get the sense from listening to it. Can you? She it's made a abs- record? Yes, it's wonderful. Oh, she's she. we knew she was wonderful way back. Absolutely. Everybody Absolutely. on It's like Walter Matthews. He was our he was our private hero on Broadway, and finally he's seventy seven years old, and Hollywood lets him make a movie, and he he the whole world knew how great he was. Getting back a little bit to a couple, one sad thing in your career, and then I want to ask you a couple of unrelated questions. The other show, Hello Dolly, you lost that to Streisand. Now, the story that we have out in the world is that. 20th Century Fox wanted Streisand to do it, and she knew she was wrong for it. Your book says oh, that, that you, she, your uh, book says that she lobbied for it. She went after it tooth and tongue with Sue Mengers. Oh, I, that's what I'm going to remember that when I, if I ever have a flop again, I'm going to remember. Oh, they talked me into it. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> that's a wonderful thing to say when you know, doggone well, you died to get that part. <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't work, I'm going to say, oh, well, everyone else wanted me so badly to do it, and they wanted me to do it, but I just, I knew it was wrong. I'm going to say that. Oh, she's smart, isn't she? <laughs> yes, Naturally, yes. my feeling about Barbara Streisand is warped, totally warped. <laughs> she wanted that part. <laughs> <laughs> when you were writing this book, did you ever get the feeling... I mean, you, you talk about the char- the the one actress whose name I you don't to, want to wait reveal. A minute, I've got to stop you. I'm not that stupid that I don't know Barbara Streisand isn't the greatest create musical oh. creative force of the whole doggone century. I know that she's just a barrel of laughs. She ain't. 
Well, but that's, I mean, there are a lot of performers that you must have run across over time who you just kind of like would rather be on the other side of the footlights with them. There must be a whole bunch of them. You, where mean, you, that, you mean where you could look up and rather see them rather than have to work with them. I mean, there must be some, right? You mean rather see them than, than work? work? Well, I mean, you could, you'd love to hear Streisand, but you wouldn't necessarily oh, yeah. want to hang out with her. Oh, I, she was my friend. Was she? We were friends. I got very snotty after that movie. <laughs> Well, you see, Thornton Wilder, I loved him and adored him, and he's one of our greatest American playwrights, and Thornton Wilder thought he wrote a comedy. Can you imagine it wasn't? Did you see that tragedy that went on in the movie? <laughs> and, and, and oddly enough, her singing is so wonderful, it almost overcomes the fact that the movie's a dud. Does it? Because they've lost so much money, they can't even take the set down. <laughs> they, it's still there. Oh, it fox, The Harmonia yeah. Gardens. I do a dance of death on it, a victorious dance of death on it, <laughs> because that's where they have, they, they make Love Boat on the same uh, oh, really? studio. And, and so on my way to the Love Boat, they have two Love Boats. One's in the ocean and the other's right on the set. And so I, on my way to the Love Boat that's on the set, I stop at the Harmonia Gardens and I sing Hello Dolly like it ought to be done. <laughs> 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 Carol, Carol Channing, um, you, you've, you're an icon in the gay community, and a friend of mine wanted me to ask you how it feels to know that these drag queens are all doing what they think of as you. I mean, that must be a very eerie feeling. I, it's no eerie feeling at all. I don't know who they're doing. And George Burns was sitting next to me and laughing his head off when seven boys were doing me. Some of them had five o'clock shadow. I do not understand why they do me with five o'clock shadow, but they do. Why do boys do me? I, 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 that's a, a difficult question. Difficult. Why, why are certain performers imitated yeah. and others not? And yeah. Can an imitation, I mean, could you see, you say you can't see when someone's doing an imitation. I can't that it's see you. It. You can't but see you who know, that is. I used to do Cholula Bankhead and Marlena Dietrich because right. I worshipped them. Right. And I realized that it is, you know, since the sincerest form of flattery. But they never recognized themselves. Cholula said, who the hell is she doing? You know? <laughs> And, and George Burns was sitting right next to me and laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? He said, they're just like you. They're doing it exactly that. That's you, Carol. I, I don't see that, these weird mannerisms. You, you performed for, two, for a couple of years with George Burns. You kind of picked up where Gracie left off, right? Yes, with George. Uh, Gracie picked me. She chose me. She did. Yes, it's like a blessing on my head, another one. It's like being knighted in St. James's Court to me. Uh, do you remember all your old lines? From, from, do you re no. I mean, could you do Hello, Dolly now? No. No, no, but I, I could learn it. I could learn it again, probably quicker than the first time. Do you have any um, advice on how to learn lines? I mean, I, I, I would no. have liked to have gotten into theater. I could never learn lines. How do you do it? Uh, first off, you're in love with the character that you're playing, and how the character it was it expresses herself, himself, and. Uh, uh, then you start working with the other actors. M most people learn their lines rehearsing with the, with the other actors. But I like to come in with them learned. 
I mean, I can't be, but but it's you have to have someone else help you. That's what it is. You have to have someone else cue you, who is an actor and who can sound like the character that's talking to you. And then in your in your in your ecstasy over getting over the character growing as you see the character grows while you're learning lines. Right. Maybe you were trying to learn some a speech that you had to say. Well, you had no perspective on yourself. What's to, what's to fall in love with? We we weren't meant to see ourselves. I do believe. I mean, every time I've seen myself on the screen, I just look like my father with a cloche hat on. So you could never watch thoroughly modern Millie again. <laughs> oh no, I just look like my father. <laughs> um, you also made recordings. Uh, you you did a co- an odd country music album. Um, I mean, Ethel Merman was notorious for doing that strange disco album, which I'm sure you heard. Yes, it was, it was hysterical. You did something called Archie <laughs> and Mahitable, which I, was that, very different. Well, uh, my son was kicking like crazy to the sound uh, the, to the beat of the music. That shows you the children before they're born. Do they feel their mother's emotions? I loved that score. Oh. I've had my ups. Bang! That's an Auschwanen. I've had my downs. Crash! That's that's the timpani and the drum, the, the 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 cymbals together. Never was no one's pet. I got a limp. Oh, I love that score <laughs> in my left hind leg. But there's life in Mahitable yet. And she went and drowned all her kittens. And Chan kicked like crazy. He thought it was terribly funny. She <laughs> ju- she she was just a a slut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that. The Eddie Bracken had right. five children. He had, he had already had five children. He played uh, Archie, the, the cockroach. And Eddie Bracken, I said, Eddie, would you feel my tummy? You're used to having children. What, is this right? He said, my gosh, the child is kicking to the time of the music. Is absolutely, yeah. So that was just before my son was born. And he liked it. Chan loved it. I loved it. I mean, before he was born, he loved it. He would go, I've had my ups. Boom, 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 boom. He'd go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carol Channing, obviously you, you, you will never retire, and you'll just keep going on oh, doing more shows. These poor people that are retired, don't you feel sorry for them? All the spice of life is gone. And... <laughs> That got you. <laughs> that, that got me. Uh, well, <laughs> you should have seen your face. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I'd like to sit on a, on a, on a paradise island. Well, you, <laughs> you did, you, you did um, a show called Legends, and this book, Diary of a Mad Playwright, talks about it. Toward the end, according to Kirkwood, the show worked. Do you think it, it ever did work? Yes. Did you want to go to Broadway with it? No. 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 He he could have fixed it, I think. I, he could have fixed it. But but uh, uh, the reason it started working is because instead of that fancy British director who ca- and I finally I I really had to tell him you know, you change things, and then you never turn around and see the havoc you've raised. I'm so sweet, usually, you know. I'm just a deer. 
<laughs> but 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 boy, he got me. I mean, working with a British director is like working with a Chinese. I mean, like speaking Chinese. He doesn't speak the same language. It doesn't cross the Atlantic. That's what it doesn't. Well, anyway, so you were talking you about legends, legends, and, and and I asked you if it worked. Yes, it started working because we got Larry Hagman to direct it. We got Mary's son. Oh. And he's excellent. He's marvelous. Boy, he's divining. He was a good director. A- good actors make good directors. They know what your problem is. They know what you're scared of. They know what you're, what you're secure on. They know, they know everything about it. And Larry, and you know he, and Mary, Mary trusted him. He's her well, son. sure. And you know he was as fair to Mary and me. He said, Mother, don't move on Carol's laugh line. Don't do that. Well, I'm helping her. You're not helping her, you know. And so he, he he would scold her, and then he'd say, "Now, Carol, don't you do this." And he was equal with us. Don't do this. This is killing the point that Mary's made, you know, like that. We he was marvelous. Then he said, "Pittsburgh opening night." I I don't I don't wish this on anyone. But Pittsburgh on opening night is. Um, uh, well, it's it's an audience. It's a charity usually. They do. It's a benefit, and they are all inherited wealth, most of them, and they don't understand the give and take of life. Right. And they just don't give, and they don't know that if they give back or if they just react normally, we will do. We will break our necks for them. They don't know that. They can get a much better performance, even with a symphony. They will play their hearts out if they will just applaud. But they don't understand that. Well, I shouldn't damn Pittsburgh. It was a it was a benefit, and there's something funny about benefits. I know you talk about that in your book, and oh. I, I've actually asked people about that, and they said it's absolutely anybody I know who's performed for a benefit said it's horrible. Horrible. Everybody is looking at everybody else, and yes. no one's looking at the stage. They're not there to see the stage. There's a pinochle game, I'm sure, going on in the back of the of the of the orchestra. That's the toughest thing. Oh, it's the toughest. They don't care at all about it. So, they don't applaud. But you were talking about that in relation to Mary Martin and Legends. Yes. And your point was? What was it? In the book? <laughs> no. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> what? What? I'm sorry. It's I, that's right. my brain. I know. I no, know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Everybody said, but don't you see, love, it's not organized. And nobody seems to mind. Did you organize the book yourself? Yes, of course. I, there was not an edit. No editor. No editor. And did you actually write it out or did you talk into a tape recorder? No, I can't talk into a tape recorder. Otherwise, I'd be talking like I'm talking on this interview. I can't remember what you asked me. You know, (laughs) it's terrible. What did you want me to say about Uh, Mary Martin? Well, I had asked you about... I adored her. I know. I had asked you about Mary Martin and um, you had mentioned Larry Hagman and the direction and then you talked about Pittsburgh and I was trying to make the connection between Larry Hagman and Pittsburgh. Oh, he said, you lost your nerve. You tried to get... He said to me, Right. he, he came backstage in intermission and he said, you lost your nerve. Your character. See, it was fun to push Mary Martin around. Right. I mean, that was really. I got to play the meanest woman since Joan Crawford daycare clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but no, Joan wasn't a mean woman, not to me. But just the same, uh, I, 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 I got to be mean to Mary. Right. 
And it was fun. And she was so sweet, but she was phony sweet, which was supposed to, that's the way she was supposed to. Anyway, anybody would have been mad at her, but I really told her off and let her have it in that show. And it was really fun. And he said, you lost your nerve. You, Carol, you lost your nerve. You tried to get along with the audience instead of just going ahead and spitting in their eye. You should have gone ahead and played it the way you always do. But I lost my... The, the, a Pittsburgh audience that's, that's inherited wealth is enough to make anybody lose his nerve. And you, you just... You, you, I, I began getting her so that she, they'd perhaps like me, I hoped. You but know, you that can't sort do of that. thing. You can't you, do not that. Not the character. You, you're, you're character. always on stage. You have to be that character. If the character is not lovable, I you shouldn't that. be lovable. I know that, but they knocked the socks out of me. <laughs> they really did. They, uh, they, you can you can lose your. I I defy Lawrence Olivier to face a a a, a, a benefit audience. Carol Channing. Well, he can't now. <laughs> no, I well somewhere up there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to find a way to. Isn't that of... awful? I mean, they. Uh, uh, that's one thing I got to hand to David Merrick. Right. Am I going over time? Um, Roger's beginning to, to pace, so I think... Oh, oh let Roger pace. He's like that. <laughs> you know, he's a hyperthyroid. <laughs> um, I, there's so many, so many questions. Boy, is he mad. <laughs> uh, I think we're, we're going to need... What's the matter? We're going to need to wrap this up. No. He just was born with that expression on his face. <laughs> uh, uh, um... <laughs> okay, I want to wrap it okay. up. Okay, and then I, I no, but I, I got to hand it to Mr. Merrick. Yeah. Mr. Merrick, I could never call him David because I respect his showmanship right. so much. All right, Mr. Merrick, I, I, I was doing the last time I was doing Dolly. We had a, a, a not Mr. Merrick. He was gone already. No, he right. wasn't gone. But anyway, it was a different producer, and he allowed Liz Smith to come in and see the be- the cancer benefit audience. And she will never think the same of me, ever, ever. She will never. It's, it, it, and Mr. Merrick, he would find out who's in the audience. What's a, you mean to say Liz Smith is in the audience? You mean to say so, the, there's a critic in the audience? There's this. And so he, you know the story. He pulled the lever and said, and, and, and said we'll have to, I'm sorry, everything's gone. And they said, what happened? He said, there's a rat in the generator. <laughs> and we got and we got to get the rat out. So you all go home and you get your money back. He won't let them see a benefit performance. Boy, I admire that man. Of course, he didn't lose any money either. <laughs> no, he <didn't. laughs> and he got rave reviews because they didn't see the benefit performance. <laughs> if you were known for one character, this is going to be a rough one. Who would you 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 want to be known for? Would it be Dolly? I know the the answer is everybody, but the question is, if you were known for one, would it be Dolly, Lorelai, or someone else? Uh, it would be a review. It would be and a review. Would, I remember doing Sugar Babies in Boston, and Sugar Babies was hilarious. I loved. That's my favorite show. I had one. I I I got to jump from one character to another to another, and. And Kevin Kelly said it was just anyway. It was I was in my native habitat. We all have a native habitat. It wasn't that I was so great. It's that I was in my name, my sphere, my own element, and that's reviews and the the and nothing but these crazy vaudevillians all around me. But nobody asked Mickey Rooney if he if they could take a road company out of Sugar Babies. 
and or make another company of sugar babies. And it was his father's heritage. His father willed him all that treasured vaudeville material. It was the greatest of vaudeville material. Annie Miller was in it. It was the greatest. She helped me. And Mickey said, my father didn't give me money. He gave me this legacy. He gave me this wonderful. And I said, Mickey, I understand. I know that. My father gave me all my understanding of, of a live audience by being a lecturer all over the world. And, and I, I, you know, it's like Liza and Judy. You watch right. her. Yeah. It, it, you, you get to see. She, she learned all her life. Judy shouldn't do that. I'll never do that. You know, she should do this. She's best at that. I'll do that. I, I, that's what I did with my father. And, and Mickey did with his father. I said, I understand that. So we closed the show in Boston, and only Boston saw it. But it was my favorite show. You've been listening to an interview with Carol Channing, whose book is Just Lucky, I Guess, a Memoir. I'm Richard Walensky on Cover to Cover. Oh, Richard. Keep, keep, keep it going for a second. Yeah. You're a mine, a mine of information. You are a joy to talk with. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> As I learned later, Carol wasn't exactly truthful about her film performances. She did star in one other film, Otto Preminger's Skidoo, a bizarre attempt to be hip, which featured Jackie Gleason and Carol as a married couple who are forced onto a yacht owned by a gangster named God, played by Groucho Marx. The high point is Carol singing the title song while walking the deck, stoned, on LSD. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>